Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Patrick Buffum. Patrick, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. Um, like Alex said, I'm Patrick Buffum. I do A-B testing and optimization at Consumer Track, and I'm super psyched to be here today. Cool. I'm, I'm psyched to have you on, Patrick, especially because you have a very unique kind of area in marketing that I don't think we've explored yet on the podcast, and that's around A-B testing. And so let's just start there. Um, can you explain what A-B testing means in a marketing context and the value it provides to a business? Yeah, definitely. Um, A-B testing in simplest terms is running an experiment on your website to see if you can make visitors to your website do the action you want at a higher rate. So in a marketing context, that would be um, maybe manipulating the image that you see when you visit the web page um, in a certain way that you think is going to drive customers to buy at higher rates. Um, so it's a nice mix of science. You have statistics there with how many people you need to see this experiment to call it valid. And then you also have some creativity because you are thinking like, okay, uh, what do I think will make customers buy more? And then you get to go test it. And, you know, you have these results that are kind of irrefutable because they're backed by data. So I think all of that makes it a really fun um, career. Are you doing tests for, for example, um, Google keyword bidding to see different, perhaps, um, you know, keyword targets or um, ad copy variations on, you know, kind of like that third party data versus kind of A-B testing, maybe something on your landing page where you can, you can change um, where people land based on maybe some data that you see on them. So there's like kind of like two kinds of data you can analyze related to A-B testing. Which do you kind of have experience with? Or is it both? Yeah, I've, I've done both. Um, I've heard of them referred to as like on-site versus off-site. So off-site would be like your PPC, like Google AdWords example. And I've definitely done that where we're experimenting with um, you know, what the copy of the ad should be and what the, like, what the increase in click rate would be with, with certain copy. But then of course, we also want to follow them when they get on the site. Like even if test B version B wins in getting people to click that ad at a higher rate, like are people just getting the site and then abandoning or are they coming and actually buy products? Because, you know, if it's the first one that, that might not technically be a winner to us or not. And then um, with the second way, uh, targeting with the more the first party data, we certainly do that. Um, usually in simplest terms, you wanna segment your site by customers versus prospects. So by prospect, I mean someone who has never bought on your site before and a customer would be someone who has. So if someone's already visited and even purchased from your site, you know a lot about them. So you wanna make that experience of them coming back as personalized as possible and that's now kind of what um, consumers expect like they expect you to know a certain about amount about them and to make their shopping personalized maybe in the past that would have been thought of as like a little creepy or a little bit like big brother but now that's what consumers want so 
it's almost a disadvantage if you are at least um, segmenting based on customers versus prospects. And I mean, right after that split, it could go all sorts of different ways. You could um, segment by customers who have bought certain products or customers in certain um, zip codes. Like it, it goes on and on. Um, that's just like the, the broadest example. Yeah, and how different do A-B tests get? Because usually in scientific experiments, you only want to tweak a small thing. But how different can can the designs get of these different web pages for different audiences? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, you're right, exactly. In science, uh, in the academic world, you definitely want to change only one, one thing or one variable. Um, and I think ideally, like, that's how it would be. because if let's say you change multiple things and your test one, you you could you can't really point to what drove that change. So I couldn't say, hey, Mr. Executive, like this is why we won over here. Like let's test this everywhere else on the site. You'd be like, oh, I don't know, it could be any of these four things, and it's kind of um, it's a lot less impactful. But I do say like with working at companies, a lot of times there's not. And rightfully so, there's not enough patience to test every little change. Sometimes, let's say you want to redesign your homepage, by the book would say, okay, like let's test every little separate part of your site first and kind of make a homepage based on that. But I mean, that's not necessarily practical. Like if if something really fast happened, like a competitor rolled out this big product and you're like, we need to adapt. You gotta, you gotta make a new landing page right then. And so, I mean, you just gotta uh, kind of walk the line between. You do need to keep it uh, statistically uh, rigorous, but also you gotta be sensitive to the business needs. It's not, it's not academics, and I mean that's a hard thing because I, I feel like life's a lot easier if it's, you know, you look at it black and white by the book. But that's not how it is in the business world. Yeah, that's really, really. Um... Good perspective. I appreciate that. Um, kind of shifting gears to your career path. What what was your career path like to get to your current role in A/B testing? Well, I always knew that I wanted to be in like marketing or advertising, and so I studied that in college. And then I got out of school, and I found myself doing kind of like a more of a generalist marketing role. Um, working on emails, a little bit of website, uh, just kind of all over the place. And I found that where the exciting stuff was happening on the data was on the data side, because, you know, we live in this world of data where we know everything, I mean, not everything, but we know a lot about people. And that's really like a huge tool for marketing marketers. And so that was really interesting me, to me. And so I was like, well, how do I get into this? And I started looking at job postings. And it's like, you know, you want to have analytical skills. And um, there's this thing called A-B testing that we do. And it was really interesting to me. So I took a course at a local college, what was like a certificate program that was all about A-B testing. And that introduced me to a lot of people in the industry. It also Obviously, I learned a lot of stuff, and it also gave me some credibility on my resume to say, like, this kid's serious about getting into this field. From there, I was able to land, like, an A-B testing-specific role, and I was super fortunate in that at this job, 
they taught me a lot of stuff. They taught me A-B testing like the right way. Like we mentioned, it was very academic and stuff. Um, learned the stats behind it. Also was able to get really good at Excel and use pivot tables and then even learn some SQL. So it was it was awesome that I got to learn all that stuff on that job and I'm really grateful for it. And I mean, since then, it's pretty much been an extension of that job. I use a lot of the same principles that I learned there just uh, in different businesses. And, you know, each business has its own website. So from an A-B testing perspective, you, you might be testing, let's say you're on an e-commerce website or an e-commerce business. Your A-B tests are going to be a lot more like seasonal. There's a lot more paths that a customer could take to convert or purchase the product. And so there's a lot more, um, it's like a more complex customer journey, but then you have sites that are simply um, fill out this form and then we'll follow up with you. And so that's kind of what keeps A-B testing interesting is all these different types of businesses have these different types of websites. And with each one, there's like nuances about what's going to drive people to purchase, the pain points. There's there's a lot of testing with each unique one. And that's kind of what keeps me interested. Yeah, that's interesting. When, when you're making um, like an A-B test, let's say you're like, you, you're given two kinds of creative. Who does that come from? What is the stakeholder profile for your work? Uh, that's a really good question. It, it can be all over the place. It, I feel like it depends on the company. Sometimes it's design who's driving those test ideas. Sometimes it's the product team. Sometimes it's marketing. Sometimes it's myself. Um, I'd say rarely is it just me, which... I, I like, you know, you, you definitely want a diversity of opinions as far as um, tests, uh, just because there's so many different viewpoints coming to your site. I would say ideally, though, that they would all kind of go through me, not as like a control thing, but just everybody's got ideas. And I think I think it's awesome. Step one, that people are interested in maybe testing, but it becomes the there's the problem of there's so many ideas and we can't run them all just because there's only a finite amount of traffic, finite amount of development resources. So we got to prioritize them. And so that's kind of when I step in and I'm like, okay, you know, how many people, how big of a lift do you really think this change would drive? So if they want to change like one word in a headline, I would be like, okay, like that's okay. But you know, have you considered if we move this uh, call to action button and make it way bigger and way up on the page? Have you thought about that? And they're like, oh, you know, like that sounds good too. But those, I, I try to coach up the ideas to make them more impactful just because, like I said, everybody's got ideas. And then once we have that idea refined, then I'd be like, okay, great, sweet idea. I'm going to go, you know, like work with whatever teams to develop this and I'll keep you in the loop as we're running it and then we'll present it. And if it's great, that's your idea. So you can, you know, trumpet noise, be all pumped up about it. Uh, and we'll go from there. <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, that, that sounds like a really fun job. Oh yeah. It's, um, it's a lot of fun. Like I said, really creative, um, but also like technical skills and probably my favorite part is you can literally tie your uh, efforts to like the bottom line, like business impact. Like I could say, 
you know, this test that I ran drove, you know, $10,000 extra that we wouldn't have seen. And that that's pretty cool. So how do you determine the effectiveness of a test? How would you calculate the, you know, the lift of B versus A when you're in the test? That one is a surprisingly deep statistics question, but at the uh, highest level, you're pretty much, you're comparing rates. Like it has to be a rate. Like you can't look for an increase in sales, for example. You could look in, look for an increase in sales rate um, or click rate. So you're comparing two rates. Um, and I mean, in simplest terms, you're plugging it into a calculator to look for statistical significance, which is basically saying, um, was this difference we observed chance like was this random so let's say we had test a was like a 10 percent conversion rate and test b was like a 20 percent conversion rate so test b would be you know technically a much higher rate and uh statistical significance would tell us like okay was this a was this random or not because if that sounds great, but like then let's pretend that test A had 10 sales and test B had 20 sales. Are you really willing to go to the CEO and be like, test B1, roll it out everywhere? There's like not enough data to it. So that's what statistical significance would tell us. And there's also a concept called power that you would also use to calculate if your results are valid. And I mean, that's that's like a super not great high level overview, I would definitely encourage anybody interested in that to like read what the experts have to say online, but that's how you know about your results. Um, you're using a lot of stats and it's, um, it is very, there's a lot of nuances to it. And you definitely want to understand that part because if, if people are in a meeting and they're attacking, why'd you do this or why'd you do that? And you can, you know, talk intelligently about the stats and you know what you're talking about, then it really helps. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So this is a fairly technical role. What did you study in college? I It, it is technical. I actually just, I studied marketing. I was not a technical person and I actually never considered myself technical throughout most of my life, but it's just kind of happened to me because I mean, I was just following what was interesting to me and it's not so scary. I, I would have been scared of it out of school, but uh, just slowly but surely, uh, you know, it seems like the whole, at least in the business world, everything's a lot more data driven. So don't be scared and just go one step at a time and you'll be surprised where you go is, is what I would say to anybody who's like, oh, I'm not so technical. I don't know about this, but yeah. you, can, you can do it if it's interesting to you. Yeah, it's there's a quote that's coming to mind that you can, most people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. Ooh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I got one for you. Okay. I read the other day. If you get 1% better every day at the end of the year, you're 36 times better than you were at the beginning of the year. That is awesome. Pretty sweet. That's so cool. I think it's true. I, yeah, I mean, the hard part is just having discipline to get 1% better every day. Yeah. How do you get better? Uh, I mean, I have been lucky in that 
I've worked at a lot of places where there's been a lot of um, collaboration, like mentor type people. I've like definitely leaned super heavily on a lot of my coworkers before, especially on those technical parts. And they had a lot of patience and helped me out. And, um, you know, over time, I obviously got better. So that, you know, hopefully you're at a place where you do have helpful coworkers who can help you. I know it's probably a little different now that we're so virtual, but, you know, the good news is I think YouTube is like a great resource, of course. And I actually, you know, just like where I met you, Alex, I'm LinkedIn, like I'm always connected with people, reaching out, seeing how they do the job just because it's super interesting to me. And I think if you're like genuinely, genuinely interested in something and someone else is like, you know, it's not awkward at all. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really, that's a really good point. Um, and I, and I want to echo that last part, you know, you can really reach out to anybody on LinkedIn, especially if you put a lot of effort into your profile and really take it seriously, you can message like, world leaders. I'm not sure if they'll respond, but you certainly could. It's surprising who you can reach on the platform. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had a negative interaction. You're right. Like literally everybody, I mean, I don't think like Jeff Bezos is, but like maybe like a tier below him, I bet they're on LinkedIn. Yeah, exactly. You just need to know their email and there are certain tools you can use to get, to get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You could, you could figure that out. (laughs) Yeah. That is kind of the funny thing. Like you do have to know somebody's email, but a lot of the time people just once you know one dude, once you know one person's email, like you can pretty much email anybody at the company. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Speaking of which, I just got a LinkedIn automated bot that scans for people in the marketing analytics industry, and more recently, just for CMOS, and oh. is inviting everybody uh to come on the podcast so it's completely oh, nice. automated oh yeah that's cool you'll have to i mean i'm sure we'll know based on your episodes but it'll be interesting to see how uh, effective that turns out to be yeah there's definitely you know you it definitely has like an error rate um greater than my own but it you know it's like 10 times faster than me so it probably it's, probably you know works out ultimately better yeah and that's that's kind of how i've been learning about marketing i i just really like practicing it in my personal life with different business ventures and testing out new channels and ways of kind of communicating and marketing yeah that's really cool um you're doing a lot of cool stuff so uh you, you should share that on each podcast like one cool thing you're doing to market yourself or your podcast unless yeah. of course it's so good you don't want to share it with everybody which <laughs> i understand oh man that's interesting i cannot confirm nor deny if i have something cooler exactly <laughs> um that's a good point no the the linkedin automated bot is by far the coolest thing i've ever set up um related to networking you know, there's this other cool thing, though, um, or mar- I guess marketing is a better term, um, but there's an interesting thing I just got for networking that is called Link. It's a reusable business card, so it's basically just like an NFC chip in a business card, wow. and you can tap it on anybody's phone, and it'll pull up your profile on their phone, and they can save your contact, 
you can also put like your website and your socials and photos and videos and content and people can like schedule a meeting with me and like everything just from this one profile whoa yeah so that's it, cool it's like having a personal What'd website you say that was called again link l-i-n-q um okay. and yeah it's like 10 bucks actually i'm gonna put check this out i'm gonna put the um the promo code i have a promo code for link i'm gonna put it in the description for this episode so if anybody wants oh, it, man. if anybody wants it, you can Monster get it. Sponsorship marketing is next. Be ready. <laughs> it's right here. It's it's actually. Dude, you got to monetize this audience listening to the podcast. <laughs> we, we, you know their data, and now we've talked about it. You could be like, this is our audience. It's, I'm sure it's a valuable one. It actually is. I do know all the demographics. In fact, let me give a preview right now to everybody who's interested. So each episode's each episode gets between 150 and 250 uh, downloads and that the listener base, those are mostly unique listeners and the listener base is 75% from the United States and 25% from 69 different other countries, 69 or so it's around there. And I've got a long tail. It's a long tail. Most, yeah, most of those countries are just one listener. It's like somebody from, uh, you know, a very remote country just happened to come across this marketing podcast. <laughs> That's awesome. It's kind of interesting. So hello out there to to, <laughs> to those people. <laughs> Wherever you are. Yeah. Let me move on. Let me ask you a question about uh, this one kind of gets into um, the business talk a little bit. So how do you identify what customer actions and behaviors are valuable to a business's bottom line. Yeah, this one is a pretty, a really good question, and it can be kind of tricky. It, um, you know, in cases like e-commerce websites, it's pretty easy. What's valuable to the bottom line? Um, you want people um, literally purchasing the product, but with other sites or even uh, less traditional e-commerce sites, there might be things like signing up for a newsletter or submitting, if we're talking business to business company, it could be like submitting a lead. And so those are, you know, if you if you ask some other company, you'd be like, you know, is it important that people uh, join the newsletter? And of course, people would say, yes, it is. but. Like I said, the thing I like about this job is you can really show your value. And I mean, in analytics in general, you can you need to be able to tie value to a lot of different things, including those non-transactional uh, events. So what you would do is, in the in the example of a lead form, you'd uh, go to sales and you'd be like, okay, what's you know what's our average order value or something and they'll just give you an average this is an estimate by the way but it's it's a good estimate and no one's going to argue with a good estimate so they'll give you the you know the average value of a sale and then you say okay well how many of leads become a sale and they'll be like i don't know 20 percent. so already you have the tools you need to like assign a value to that um lead submission because you know how much the order value, average order value is and how many of those leads become submissions. So at that point, it's just a math equation where you're figuring out, um, I drove this many leads, this is worth this much. And of course, you want to get buy-in from your manager, whoever, with your logic before you know going crazy with that. But I mean, that's pretty much how it is. And the same goes for a newsletter. I would say 
you know, you work with your data science team and you say, how predictive is it if someone signs up for a newsletter that they'll become a customer later? And they'll be like, um, you know, 9% of people do that. So then again, you just, you got to find those numbers and make a sophisticated guess about an estimate about how much that action is. And it is tough. Like, I think that's probably one of the hardest things in analytics um, is determining the value of each action. But at the end of the day, I think you just need to understand the business and talk to your coworkers to kind of get those figures I'm talking about that you tie together to come up with an estimate. And it's, I mean, it's not nearly as clean as just driving sales and driving sales is um, kind of more fun and cooler and stuff, but it's, it's nonetheless important. And people will really appreciate that. Just think how the people who write the newsletter will appreciate that you determine the value of someone subscribing to it. Like they'll like jump for joy. Then those aren't, you know, those aren't typically data people. So they'll be very happy that you're putting value on their efforts and rightfully so there is value to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very important role. And, um, you know, it, it, it's also political for that reason. Can you talk a little bit about how maybe a political influence in an organization, maybe a, a, a powerful executive or something, how that can, um, I produce like a headwind, um, against your results. Can you talk about that oh, happening? Oh yeah. 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 It, it goes both ways. And, uh, to your point, uh, if let's say your company spent a lot of money on some marketing campaign and it showed modest results, especially if it was your marketing leader's idea, they're going to, they might come to you as an analyst to try to kind of, as they would say, massage the data to make it seem a little bit better than it was. Um, they might try to, uh, you, I even, I mean, people, I have not seen this by the way, but I know if you know anything about graphs, you can manipulate the axes to make it look like the change was larger or smaller than it actually was if we're thinking about bar graphs. So that's one end, they're trying to make it seem better. And then the other end is, let's say they really didn't like some idea and you're reporting on the idea, um, they might ignore the data, they might, uh, kind of attack you about it because unfortunately in this case you're the messenger i just look it's part of being an analyst that yeah like especially when reporting results you're gonna start to experience like a little bit of the office politics stuff but i mean i don't think it's ever really malicious and it's it's not at you it's more of a you know that's either their baby or they have some weird thing against the other idea that you probably don't understand so you just go about doing your job. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. There's always more going on behind the scenes than we know. Oh, yeah. And don't assume, because you don't know. Like, I, you could assume, like, oh, he doesn't like me because I went to his rival college. But, like, maybe, but most likely not. <laughs> yeah, that was... that was oddly personal for something that actually didn't personally happen to me. So <laughs> I don't know where I came up with that. I was going to say, you must know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. And follow up on that previous question. How do you tailor a business's marketing operations to your learnings from your tests? Um, I would say it kind of depends on 
how um, data-driven your organization is. I feel like no, no organization in today would say they aren't data-driven, but you know, practicing what they say is sometimes different. If they are truly data-driven, it's really not hard at all. Um, you know, you show them your test or your analysis, and they'll make those changes, assuming you did your due diligence, you're showing me like, you, you go a little bit further than reporting. You'll say, okay, like I saw this, and because of that, I recommend this, and then this would be the impact. Like, that's what they want. Like, take it the full way. Don't just um, data puke, as they call it. And then if your company is a little bit um, less data-driven, more, I don't know, more gut-feely or personal experience-driven, then I would say, I mean, it's tough. It's not ideal. That's not really where you want to be. But I would say you just got to be, you got to be really good. You got to be bulletproof. You need to make sure your data is uh, totally accurate, of course. You need to make sure you're telling a story that's easy to understand and you're illustrating that business impact. And I mean, that's all you can do. Um, if, if they aren't willing to use that from that point and you're still doing that, then mm, maybe you should find a new place. Cause at some point you, you can't, you can only do so much. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, not to be a downer, but uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, some, some people, they just want to do things their way. It's, it's like that with everything. Yeah. Like you said earlier, you know, the analyst is really just the messenger between the business result and the executive who's hearing about it. And, um, sometimes they, sometimes they do shoot the messenger. <laughs> Heck yeah, they do. <laughs> Not a lot. I, I can think of like less than less than a handful of times but sometimes i'm like geez this wasn't even my idea <laughs> That's and funny. then of course the people whose idea it was don't even peep up <laughs> yeah let's move on i, I want to ask about um a little bit more uh this is a more involved question because it it is based on a concept that you kind of have to have a little bit of business experience to understand and that is a product owner. And so the the secondary concept I want to discuss is a data owner. Um, and that's what this question is about. So let me ask, mm -hmm. um, explain the idea of a data owner and how this role has come to prominence in recent years. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, like you mentioned, we'll start with the idea of a product owner, which is very common, especially in tech companies in the product department you have a single individual who is kind of like the CEO of their own um, branch of the business. So it could be, let's say uh, you're on a big e-commerce website, by e-commerce website, I just mean like a retailer, for example. So like, let's say Gap, and you may be the product owner of the checkout process. Like, obviously you care about how the rest of the site is doing, but that checkout process is, your thing you are the expert so if there's anything wrong with the checkout process they're going to go to you if um anything related to it if anybody in the company has an idea about the checkout process they'll probably go to you it's like being the mini ceo and the interesting part is you don't have any formal power like you're not really a boss of anybody but you have a bunch of people that 
you need to work in the direction that you're dictating. You have developers, designers, analysts, all they all have to kind of conform to your biz- your vision. But again, you can't, you know, there's no real not that hopefully you wouldn't threaten anybody, but even if you did threaten them, like they'd be like, you're not my boss. I don't care. So you have to really be very personal, personable. You have to know your stuff to earn their respect and you have to have a good vision. So uh, yeah. And the example I was talking about, it's like a checkout process and there'd probably be one for men's clothes, women's clothes, all that stuff. And so what Alex is talking about, this data product owner is kind of a newer trend I've seen where a business businesses are treating data as a product, which it is because it's like an internal product. All sorts of teams all over the company are using data and, you know, you need to make sure the well that they're drawing data from is good. Otherwise it could have catastrophic results. So it's gotten important enough where they're assigning an individual to, you know, be in charge of the data. If, if, if data is slow that day, if, if something's wrong, they would go to this, this person and ask for explanations. So this person would be in charge of um, data warehouse personnel, developers to ensure the integrity of data. And I mean, it's just uh, an interesting new role that I've seen come about where data is so important. Like I said, that, companies are uh, treating it as its own product and uh, i would encourage anybody who's interested in data and also likes being around people to check that one out yeah yeah this is such a new type of role and i think it's really exciting because we see it at the forefront but we are part of you know such a small community of people that knows what's coming um, in the job market for marketing data, you know, think about how few people really know that. And now hopefully a lot more people will, will know about yeah. kind of what's coming to the general public. This is like the forefront of the forefront. Yeah. It's so cool. It is cool. It's exciting. Product owners, like, uh, I feel like they're starting to, uh, those kind of people who have been product owners get promoted very high up there's a it's a very high ceiling career oh yeah um and it's very attractive to like if you ever want to start your own company like if you've been a product owner like you can do it it's a it's a really good career path yeah mini ceo is an amazing way to put it that's like spot on um it's it's absolutely like so many different stakeholders um you don't really directly manage them but you you know absolutely depend on everybody depends on each other um, it's, I, and I think that's probably what it's being a CEO is like too. Um, <laughs> you know, that there, there probably isn't that much of, it's probably very much more a partnership than, um, like a management structure, um, in the C-suite. I don't know if that's true. I feel like it's true. Yeah. I don't know. We need to have a CEO on to talk about it. That's a good point. Okay. I will, um, I'll bookmark that for later. Do you have any advice for, uh, maybe college age kids who are just, starting to enter the, you know, the professional world, um, what would you tell them? Mm. Well, it's a, it's a tough time, especially with a lot of remote jobs and they probably were in remote in college. So, I mean, they're probably used to it to a degree, but like I mentioned in this episode, like I leaned a lot on my coworkers early on to help me 
learn challenging skills. I would say still try to lean on your coworkers. Everybody knows you're new, not in a bad way, that you're young. So they're expecting you to ask them questions. If you have them, don't be afraid to. No one's going to think less of you. Definitely do that. Um, read read up as much as you can on topics. Uh, I think LinkedIn is personally a great way to do that. That's mostly why I connect with a lot of people, just to read the things that they're posting or liking. That's how you get your um, specific like industry knowledge. But also don't, you know, don't like freak out if, you're not if you're overwhelmed or you're not uh, learning as fast you as you thought you would just there's so much that's uh like you wouldn't even i I can't even really think of right now because it's so natural to me but at the beginning it was so weird like little meeting etiquette or um just like how to be quote-unquote professional the what the way i like to think about it is um I had some neighbors and they're like, yeah, my kid, this was early in the pandemic. They're like, my kindergartner is, you know, starting zoom school tomorrow. And he doesn't even like, he's never even used a computer. Like, so <laughs> we're asking someone who's never used a computer to get on zoom. Like imagine how much new stuff that is. Like you can't even focus on the task at hand. Like, <laughs> you know, like this is a power button. What's that? Or like a mouse, like what happens when I move this? Like, that's how I feel it kind of is for brand new people on the job. So, you know, don't freak out if, in if in this, um, uh, illustration, you can't, pay attention in class because there's so much like new stuff just obviously do your best but don't don't get down on yourself yeah i think there's this is a very advanced piece of wisdom don't be afraid to look stupid and in fact the person who looks the dumbest is the person who learns the most during the year so if you look back on a year there's always going to be somebody who probably stuck out in meetings a little bit and asked a lot of questions or said a couple too many things. There's always like one or two people like that in every single organization, right? And sometimes you are that person, sometimes it's somebody else, and um, that person learns the most. So don't be afraid to be that person. That takes bravery. Yeah, I bet when you start to interview some CMOs, a decent percentage of them will be those kind of people at, at one point in their career. Absolutely. It's it's a skill that really takes you far. We all know it too. We all, you know, I'm sure you know people like that, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, even if I thought their idea or whatever was uh, not great, like I definitely admired them for stepping out. So, and it says a lot about them. Um, and it would say a lot about me if, if I was judgmental of them. So I don't know. It's, uh, I admire those people. And I think most people do, even yeah. if they don't agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I love that point that you admire them. It's true. It's like, um, it's like, it's almost like you're me. It's, there is an art to it. There, there is an art to pushing the boundaries a little bit and asking, you know, one extra question. There's, if you do it, you know, in a tasteful way, people, you know, people will respect it. Like you can bet on it. Yeah, definitely. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Patrick, for hopping on. I think this has been a really great conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. All right. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.